in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, an AI becomes a video game grandmaster. And the disappearance of our arthropods. I'm Shamini Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up, reporter Nick Howe has been finding out about a new challenger in the world of online gaming. When you were young... How did you learn? School, of course, but also likely through playing games. Whether it was a friendly game of football or an unfriendly game of Monopoly, play allows humans to acquire skills that they'll go on to use in later life. But it's not just humans who need to learn life skills. Artificial intelligences do as well. By getting them to learn by playing, researchers think that this could be a better way for AIs to understand the world around them. AIs have mastered board games like chess, Go, and even video games like Super Mario. But these games have relatively simple rules. For researchers to develop a more complex AI, they need a bit more of a challenge. Enter StarCraft II. In basic terms, the aim of StarCraft II is to build an army to overwhelm your opponent, who is trying to do the same thing. To actually accomplish that, you need to direct your units to gather resources to allow you to build buildings, which in turn will allow you to build more units for your army. Now, beating an opponent in StarCraft is particularly difficult for AIs, because there's lots of choices that can be made at any one time. Do you want to gather more resources, build a unit, move some of your army to attack an enemy, develop a new technology? The list goes on. At any one time, there's around 10 to the 26 different choices that could be made. And this is all happening in real time. There's no turns to think about things, like in chess. To further complicate matters, in a game of StarCraft, you don't know what your enemy is up to, unless you have eyes on them with a scouting unit. Also, whilst playing in real time, you need to be planning. Something you do in the first few minutes of the game may have impacts near the end. And so it was kind of somewhat clear that StarCraft would be a great grand challenge for us to tackle using the techniques we love, namely neural networks, deep reinforcement learning and so on and so forth. This is Oriol Vinyals of Google's DeepMind Technologies. This week in Nature, Oriol is showcasing an AI called AlphaStar, which had been learning how to play StarCraft. And it's gone pretty good at it. How good? Well, Oil and the team tested it against real human players online. We actually calibrated at a very kind of high level. So StarCraft 2 has a few leaks that players get ranked as, from bronze, silver, gold, up to diamond, master, and grandmaster. Grandmaster is the very top 200 players of a region, and we played in Europe because that's where DeepMind is based in. And we actually ranked amongst Grandmaster. AlphaStar swept aside many top players to reach the pinnacle of the ranking leagues. But what does it mean to be a Grandmaster? Here's professional StarCraft 2 player Dario Wunsch, better known as TLO, with an explanation. 
So yeah, that's basically the creme de la creme. You know, um, probably top 50 Grandmaster players are people that are competing at international tournaments. So AlphaStar is very close to a professional level uh, looking at that. So how did AlphaStar reach these lofty heights? Well, the first step was to train the AI by letting it watch human players playing against each other. By being fed in data from hundreds of human matches, AlphaStar got a sense of how to play the game. The next step was then for the AI to play against itself to determine which strategies were the most effective. This made the AI improve, but as Oreo explained, it wasn't quite enough to get the AI to grandmaster level. So if you just take this agent that's created from human behavior or imitation learning and make it play it against itself, it improves a little bit, but it loses its diversity in strategies, right? There's so many different things that can happen in this game. And essentially, self-play focuses too much on a single strategy, and then it's not robust against all the sorts of different creative ways that you can play the game. So what we did to improve self-play is to create this notion of exploiters, that are just agents which sole purpose is to beat the main agent to show what are you weak against. These exploiters played in bizarre and unexpected ways which exposed the holes in AlphaStar's strategy. And so that, plus then some notions of keeping a bit of this imitation behavior, just this human, um, if you will, prior knowledge about the strategies that exist, those two key components the imitation and the leak then created AlphaStar Final, the agent that was essentially Grandmaster. Now, you may be thinking, okay, the AI was a Grandmaster, but isn't a computer always going to be better at a computer game? And you have a point. While humans playing the game are physically limited to the speed they can click the mouse or press the keyboard, the AI doesn't have fingers that can only click so fast. To make sure AlphaStar played fair, Dario, who you heard from earlier, advised the DeepMind team. They basically put some limitations on the agents that they could act just about the same speed as a human, would have some reaction delay and and so on. And when I was in their offices, I was assessing if now that they've put these restrictions in, if the agent is actually competing on a fair level to a human. After adding the limitations to the AI, Dario was happy with how it played. In the paper, he said, overall, it feels very fair. This was important to the DeepMind team, as it meant that AlphaStar couldn't brute force a victory by performing a superhuman number of actions simultaneously. Instead, it had to improve its skill and strategy, much like a human would have to do. But whilst hammering humans at video games is all well and good, how does it help develop AI technologies and move us towards more broad-ranging intelligences and even human-like artificial general intelligence, or AGI? Well, Oriel hopes that understanding how AlphaStar got better at StarCraft could help train future AIs. But whilst Oriel is optimistic about how his team's approach will help build AGI, Michael Rivastos, an AI researcher not associated with this work, has concerns that we may miss something by designing AIs in this way. He thinks Oriol's approach is great for solving problems that have an optimal solution, like being awesome at StarCraft 2, but for more general purpose applications, it falls short. So it seems to me that 
to some extent in the current landscape, we're very much kind of looking at very hard puzzle-like problems rather than, you know, what, what, what humans do, which is, you know, they're, they're mostly rubbish at most things, but they kind of do okay across a very broad range of tasks. To move past this narrow specialization and reach that human-like level of general intelligence, Michael thinks that the next thing AIs need to do is learn how to listen. AlphaStar basically tried millions of different strategies until it found something that worked, which isn't really what humans do. If an architect had to build a million houses until they built one that didn't fall down, well, they wouldn't get a lot of work. Instead, humans learn from each other, from books and schools. And that's what Michael thinks AI should do more of. My personal view is that it has to be more about communication. The products of, of human intelligence, you know, we, are, we accumulate them culturally over time as a society and, uh, you know, through collective intelligence. No, no, no single person can get a lot of enough experience to solve the really big problems by themselves. And right now, I mean, even, even on the simplest level, you couldn't, let's say, take this system and easily tell it, this whole area of strategies you're considering is not useful, ignore it. There is no way for this agent or this algorithm to actually consider what information it might be given. That was Michael Ravatsos from the University of Edinburgh in the UK. You also heard from Oriol Vignales from DeepMind Technologies, also here in the UK, and Dario Wunsch from Team Liquid in the Netherlands. You can find Oriol's paper over at nature.com, and we've also got a video showing the AI StarCraft army being put through its paces. You'll find that over at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Later on, we'll be hearing about a climate lawsuit in Canada. That's coming up in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Dan Fox. Although it may have only lasted for a few seconds... Researchers have uncovered evidence of an enormous lightning bolt, more than 500 kilometres long, that blazed through American skies back in October 2017. The record-smashing flash was discovered by a team of researchers who were studying data from ground-based lightning detectors and an instrument aboard the GO-16 satellite. The mega-flash originated in skies above northern Texas before travelling across the state of Oklahoma and into Kansas. In total, the lightning lit up an area of almost 68,000 square kilometres. And while this flash beats the previous record, a 321-kilometre-long bolt seen in 2007, researchers are already beginning to identify even bigger lightning bolts in data from GO-16 and its twin satellite GO-17. This suggests that these vast electrical discharges may be much more common than previously thought. Head over to Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society to read this illuminating research. If you're planning a career in pop music, a team of researchers in Montreal might have some songwriting tips for you. They've used a new model to identify the songs most enjoyable to the human brain. By analysing a huge musical repertoire, from Canadian folk songs to the works of Bach, the team have developed a way to measure a trait the researchers call complexity. The researchers then asked people to rate various musical clips. Participants preferred songs of medium complexity to simple and highly complex tunes. The team also found that when listeners weren't sure of how a song would unfold, they preferred fewer surprises. 
but if they thought they knew how a tune was going, they enjoyed a surprise. This result supports existing theories that in many types of art, audiences tend to most enjoy the middle-of-the-road option. Read the full paper in the Journal of Neuroscience. If you pick an animal on Earth at random, chances are it's an insect. Some estimates suggest that more than 80% of all living species are insects, and there are probably hundreds of millions of times more insects living on this planet than there are humans. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that insects or other arthropods, such as spiders and centipedes, are thriving. In fact, arthropod populations are facing serious declines. But just as it's difficult to count their exact number, it's also tough to put precise numbers on their decline. A team led by Sebastian Seibold at the Technical University of Munich in Germany have been taking on this sizeable challenge with one of the biggest studies of arthropod abundance and diversity. Reporter Izzy Clark called Sebastian up and started by asking him what existing studies have shown. We have seen a very interesting study from Germany a few years ago showing that insect biomass across many sites in northern Germany has declined massively over the last 25 years. But they have not identified insects to species level and therefore it was not possible to show which species are actually declining. Is it affecting all or is it only certain insect groups? So we know insect levels are declining, but we don't seem to have a big picture study. So how have you been trying to fill in that gap? Our study now covers a broad spectrum of insects, arthropods, because it's not only insects, but also spiders are involved. And we recorded biomass, but also the number of individuals, species numbers, so we can really talk about biodiversity more broadly. And the other thing that is new and which has been unclear so far is whether most studies so far have been focused on grasslands or other open habitats, but it was unclear whether forests were affected by these massive declines. And to tackle this, you have done a pretty extensive study. So what did you set out to do? So the studies seen so far have usually focused on a few sites, but for this project, 150 sites in managed grasslands were installed in three regions in Germany and another 140 sites in forests. And at the moment, we are at the level of about 2,600 species that were sampled on our sites. But ours is, I would say, one of the first that combine these different measures of diversity. And our group has been collecting arthropod data for about 10 years now. Gosh, 10 years is quite a lot of time. So how is it looking? What did you find by looking at all these different species over such a long period of time? Biomass of insects, both in forests and grasslands, have been declining over the 10 years of our study. Also the number of individuals, so the, the abundance of insects, has been declining and also the number of species has been declining in, in both of these two habitat types, grasslands and forests. Do we know why we're seeing these declines? Yeah, this is of course the, the most important question and our data shows that drivers of the decline have to act somehow on landscape scale. It was not the, the local land use intensity, which we more or less suspected, but it 
must be something acting more on a larger spatial scale. And we found, at least for grasslands, that the decline was more pronounced, it was stronger on sites that were embedded in a landscape with uh, a lot of arable fields in the surrounding. So this points to drivers related to intensive agriculture, especially arable farming. Okay, so does that mean if you know if you had a nature reserve in the area, if the surrounding areas aren't looking so good, then that will also not be as helpful as we think it could be? That's exactly the point, and that's that's what we find. We have some some sites that are protected areas that are managed mainly for conservation purposes, but still we observe declines within these protected areas. And the drivers seem to be linked to land use in the surrounding region. We try to collect more data on on forest structure, for example. So we would like to understand in more detail what's driving insect dynamics in forests. And we are at the moment collecting more data on this, but also for grasslands. It would be nice to understand what is it that causes the decline. It's not just plowing over a field. It could be pesticides, it could be the loose of certain habitats, or it could be a combination of all these things. And I think we really need to understand more clearly the contribution of these individual drivers to design better management practices. Now that we know that we're seeing these declines, based on some of the policies that we have in place, does anything need to change now that we've got this study to show? I think what really has to change is that we have to stop thinking small scale. It's obviously not enough to just protect a small area or change farming practices within a small area. Uh, what we need is a large-scale approach, I would like to say. So we really need to coordinate conservation activities, changes in land use practices across regions and, for example, in the vicinity of protected areas and so on to create buffer zones, but also to really increase habitat availability, habitat quality for insects across a continuous landscape. That was Sebastian Seibold from the Technical University of Munich in Germany. You can find his paper over at nature.com. Finally on the show, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined in the studio by Flora Graham, editor of the Nature Briefing. Flora, hi. Hi. Three quickfire stories today then. And for our first one, let's head over to Canada, where a lawsuit has just been filed. That's right. This joins a wave of lawsuits um, all over the world where climate activists, um, particularly young people, are turning to the courts to try to stop their governments from doing things that they think are contributing to global warming. And yes, quite striking then that, that it is young people who have filed this suit. A lot of these cases hinge on the idea that young people are the ones who are really going to reap the whirlwind of climate change. And so they're the ones that perhaps have the best chance of making this argument in the courts. In this case, it's 15 plaintiffs between the ages of 10 and 19. One, for example, Ira Reinhardt-Smith, he's 15. He said he first got involved with climate activism through the school strike movement. And he's saying that this lawsuit is helping him to express his anger and his fear that his generation and generations to come are going to be exposed to things the world has never been exposed to before. Hmm. And, And you say there's a wave of these across the world. I mean, what's happening in this case? Well, in this case, there's no explicit right to a healthy environment under the Canadian Constitution. So the case really hinges on an untested legal theory that 
global warming will impinge on other fundamental rights like equality, the rights to life, property, culture, and those kinds of things. If we're in untested waters, then what are the plaintiffs hoping that is going to be done as a result of this? I think what's interesting here is in contrast to some of the really high profile cases in the United States, the government in Canada is by and large in agreement with the plaintiffs about many of the issues, including the underlying climate science. But the people who've brought the case, they want to argue that a simple ruling ordering the government to take a certain action is not the outcome they're looking for. They want the courts to really take control and oversee everything until the government has really implemented a strong climate policy. Finally on this one then, this lawsuit has only just been filed. What are people saying about its chances of success? Well, legal experts that we've spoken to say the case probably does have legs and it may even be politically beneficial for the government in that it could give them cover to act more aggressively to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Moving on to our next story in today's news chat then, Flora, and it's about an Alzheimer's drug that's had, well, it's had a bit of a second chance. That's right. This drug is called aducanumab. It's from a company called Biogen. What's really interesting here is this drug was the last gasp for a very promising line of research into a potential treatment for Alzheimer's. And when it failed in clinical trials, this whole line of research was seen as dead. So the fact that this drug now seems, after a new analysis of the data set, to have some promise is potentially a very exciting change. How is it then that this failed drug has come back into prominence? Well, the company itself said the drug doesn't work. But since then, they've evaluated new data from the same studies and found that over the very long term, at very high doses, it does seem to significantly slow cognitive decline for people with early stage Alzheimer's disease. Now, if that pans out to be true, this will be the only treatment that can say it does that. Right. And, and, and what, pray tell, does it do? Well, it attacks the amyloid protein plaques in the brain that we know are associated with Alzheimer's, but really we don't know exactly how. We don't know how these protein plaques are related to the symptoms and the causes of the disease, but they're definitely present in the brains of people with Alzheimer's. Hmm, okay, so so some hope then that this drug might actually be useful. Um, what happens next? The drug still has to go through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for approval, so it'll be a long time before any patients outside the trial do get to try this treatment. Well, the drug approvals process can take a fair while, so I guess we'll have to wait and see how this one pans out. For our final story today, though, let's talk about an ongoing outbreak of the viral disease African swine fever. What's going on here? Well, anybody who's been following this story will know that African swine fever is having an absolutely devastating effect on farms throughout Asia. Uh, Almost 2 million pigs have been culled in China alone. So it's a serious disease then, and uh, and it's been, as you say, spreading across Asia. That's right. It's lethal for pigs. And now there's new signs that it's appearing in South Korea. It's been seen on farms near the northern border, and it's also been seen in wild pigs. So the country is taking some pretty extreme measures to try to stop it. And, uh, and what sort of measures are we talking about then? Well, South Korea has mobilized military snipers and drones along the demilitarized zone between itself and North Korea to try to stave off the wild boars that can carry the disease. 
I mean, that seems, as you say, a very extreme way of controlling this disease, which presumably is down at least in part to the lack of a vaccine. But there has been some research out that might help speed vaccine development along. Researchers are indeed under strong pressure to try to come up with some way to stop this disease. Veterinary researchers in China have announced that they have managed to image the virus to gain a newly detailed look at all of its complex parts. And they do have two vaccines under development. Well, as with our other stories in today's news chat, I mean, it'll be a while before we see any results. So one to keep an eye on there with what clearly is a huge story in Asia. Flora, thank you so much for joining me in today's news chat. Uh, listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for all the latest science news and head over to nature.com slash briefing where you can sign up for a daily science newsletter. That's all for this week. But don't forget, if you want to see that StarCraft AI in action, you can check it out over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.